Hello woodworms, I'm Ray Deptarius and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who like woodworking and like reading about woodworking too. In today's episode I'm joined by Brad, a friend of mine who I think is quite knowledgeable about hand tools and we're taking a bit of a detour from the formal book reviews just to talk about tools, hand tool process and some general thoughts around the shop. As we're reviewing books about tools I thought it was appropriate to consider what I would go and buy if I was restarting my hand tool journey. And I said, Brad, a challenge. I said, Brad, if you were spending $1,000 on a beginner toolkit and you wanted to buy things that were useful, not only for your first projects, but for investments that would last you a lifetime, how would you go about spending the money? We ended up speaking for just on an hour and a half about the topic. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about some of the more generic topics, things like bevel up versus bevel down and some general thoughts around tools. And in the next episode, we'll get into the specifics of the list. We ended up with three lists, and I think they're all equally valid. Two of them were Brad's and one of them was mine. And these are lists that just suggest what tools you should buy as you start your journey. I hope you enjoy the show. So I have the pleasure today of being joined on the show by Brad. Brad is a friend of mine and he's quite an accomplished hand tool user. He's been doing it for a number of years now. And I find that quite often we've had some interesting discussions around which tools to use and uh, what tools he would recommend versus some of the mainstream ideas. So thanks, Brad, for joining us today. And maybe just by means of introduction, if you'd like to just talk a little bit about your woodworking experience and how you got into hand tools. Good afternoon, Ray. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Uh, I hope I can provide some some, some information um, that will be useful to your listeners. I've been woodworking as a woodworking, as a furniture or fine woodworking, probably since around 2005. I've done, though I will say I had a bandsaw before that because I was drawn into making other things out of wood. Like most people who started the way I started, I started watching Norm Abrams, you know, and that more wholly power tool or mostly power tool way of assembling wood together. And certainly I still have a shop with lots of equipment that runs on electrons. But at some point you hit a wall uh, with that where there's that next step that you can't take, or at least you realistically can't take without without learning about hand tools. Um, and they have a different way of looking at materials and handling reference surfaces that you don't have us perfectly square board on all six sides all the time. And hand tools take that into account, whereas power tools almost require that because of all the the jigs and fences and pieces like that. I don't think we can overstate the effect that Chris Schwartz had in in pushing all of us in the direction of, of hand tools, of making things by hand and how that's a viable option. Some of my best experiences with that, well, I had purchased other hand tools beforehand because this is what so-and-so told me on a forum. This, you know, I started woodworking a little bit pre-internet and then, well, not pre-internet, but pre-YouTube, pre-Instagram, all that kind of stuff. And that was, you know, you went onto a forum and asked questions and this person would tell you this and they get in arguments over sharpening, which still happens. And that's kind of where I started down the road. I mean, the real turning point for me was when I realized I didn't need a drum sander. I had just purchased and fixed up this grizzly double drum sander to have in my shop, this crowded shop. And then I realized I could do the same thing with the smoothing plane, which was a 20th the weight. 100%. And, And Brett, typically, I mean, how much time do you spend woodworking in a typical week or a typical month? What would you, what would you say your kind of bandwidth for this is? 
It's highly varied. In a typical week, I might get one week where I only get a few hours in the shop. I might get another week where I might, if I'm lucky, get 40 hours in the shop uh, before work or after work. Um, it really depends on, like everybody else, you know, I'm a, I'm a hobbyist. I'm not a professional. I do this for my, for my family, for my friends, but I don't do this uh, to make income. So it's got to work its way around the rest of my life's commitments. Fair enough. And uh, yeah, I guess, you know, you always have those projects where you just put a few extra hours in and you're getting quite excited about it. And then life seems to happen for a bit and three weeks has slipped by and you haven't done anything. And then, you know, again, sometimes you just get that bonus weekend that you weren't expecting and you could uh, just enjoy the time with that. So yeah, I guess we, we've all been there. We're going to spend quite a bit of time, I think, tonight talking about tools. And I just thought in terms of positioning it with a context on it do you have a, a tool budget or a kind of idea of what you want to spend on tools in a month or a year uh, i know you certainly one of those people that seems to recycle your tools so you you don't seem to be precious about buying a tool deciding that you're not going to use it you know selling it and, and moving on to something else but just in terms of positioning for users what what sort of uh, budget are you looking at typically in you know months or years um for your for your woodworking I don't have a specific budget for my woodworking. It's one of those things that's going to depend on other costs in the house, expenses that are going on. Did I get a bonus this month? Did I get some money for, for my birthday? Did I, you know, all of those sorts of things are going to play into this. But one of the things that I would encourage anybody, especially since I think so many people are starting out, is just to be patient with the tool acquisition. Um, you know, I've been doing this in one form or another and then i inherited some tools because i had some great grandparents who were in in the trades you know 15 18 years i mean i remember looking at those shops full of tools thinking oh that's never going to happen if you stick with a hobby and you know, everything that your extra income is the stuff that you're spending on that instead of lunch out or the newest iphone or whatever other thing it might be, if that becomes your priority, if that becomes the thing that you value, then over time you will get those things that you need and you want. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly some sage advice there in terms of you know, taking your time. I mean, a, a fully kitted out shop is uh, quite an investment and I'd, and I'd argue, I mean, you know, and I, and I probably fell into this trap, but in the beginning I was really buying almost for the the sake of putting them up on the wall, not because I actually had a project that I needed them. And, you know, sometimes that meant it was a year down the line before I even got around to using the tool. And, and frankly, yeah, that was, that was probably just a bit excessive in the beginning. You know, and we all get that and we, cause we think we need that to do what we do. And, uh, you know, I think I want to take that from two different ways. On the one hand, I dislike the things that try and tell beginners that this is all that they'll ever need and want is this one tool. But the flip side of that is you don't need all, everything in order to accomplish something. And as long as you're realistic about what, you, what you're going to be doing with what you have. I did some crazy things early on with a circular saw that were probably not, uh, not recommended, and I wouldn't recommend anyone else because that's what I had. But I got stuff done. Absolutely right. And you've always struck me as someone who um, generally buys rather than um, you know spends a lot of time doing tool restoration. Is that a true sort of classification there did you did you dabble with the the sort of antique tool restoration or have you generally just gone and uh, and bought something to do the job so i tried early on i tried it in power tools and i tried it in hand tools doing old tool restorations and i'll do it if there's something particular that i want that's not available or 
something that's practically unavailable. You know, I've recently fixed a handle on a brace and cleaned that up because there aren't many uh, six-inch braces around. Okay. But if I find that you really early on, and this is something that this just falls into two camps, neither is right or wrong, but they're just different. Are you a person who is wanting to get results immediately from your woodworking, or are you a person who wants to rebuild old tools? Some people get a great enjoyment in the, from the craft on just fixing up old tools, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's a valid hobby. Uh, you can watch somebody who does it. They do a beautiful restore on a hand plane or a saw or something like that. They might put 40, 100 hours into fixing up that tool. It might look like brand new. Now, you've got to look at all the time and all of the money that you spent in buying sandpaper and chemicals to clean it and new paint and that new hawk iron that you've put in that old plane and everything else and compare that to what does that cost versus a new plane or a new SAR or whatever. I do think that the way we learn what most people learn woodworking nowadays, very few people get to learn it hands-on like we might have 50, 100 years ago. So most people are learning it on their own. And let me t tell you, learning how to set up a hand plane by yourself when it's wrong, it's bad, it's poorly sharpened, it's not flat, is miserable. You know, I, I inherited a number four, a number five, and a number four and a half. All of them had been used between my great-grandfather, who was a cabinet maker, and me to level doors. And, you know, there were bent chip breakers and all of these other pieces on there that were not right. Uh, one of them has clearly been used so much that it's, it's gotten a bit of a banana curve at the back of it. And that's awesome. It's neat from a historical perspective. But if you hand somebody this collection of parts that doesn't work right, they don't know what it's supposed to feel like. You know, my experience with handsaws growing up was just working with dull, old handsaws. I thought they were terrible. Gave me my first circular saw. I thought I died and gone to heaven. But then you pick up I mean, a saw from Bad Axe and it's fantastic. I think it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, you know, insight on that because I think, as you know, I mean, I, I went down this route of collecting all these old uh, records. I mean, Stanley's by any other name, uh, just they were certainly uh, more common to find records here than, than Stanley's. And, you know, I, I got all of them together and I did what I thought was a great job restoring. But then at the back of my mind, I always had this concern or suspicion, but, but there was this fear that the thing that I'd restored wasn't performing as well as as a premium plane would have would have been and the the Lee Nielsen the the number seven jointer that I've got is I mean it's a it's, it's a wonderful mistake but I bought it because I was trying to joint a piece of wood and it didn't matter what I did I was following Shannon's videos I was looking at Paul's videos I was looking at wood by right videos I was doing whatever I could and I was going and I, and I just kept getting this daylight that was showing between the straight edge and the um and the wood and I checked the top of the the workbench I did all of that stuff and eventually I was just like this must be the plane you know I've got this old number number eight at the time record it's just not getting this wood right and I went online and I ordered the Lee Nielsen and a few days later I actually went and checked the straight edge and it turns out that the straight edge wasn't straight so, you know, <laughs> oh boy I, I ended up with a, a number seven out of you know sheer frustration you know my, my son has a you know, as a quick segue as a fisherman, you know, I always say to him, if I could see what was going on under the water, 
I'd be happy to wait all day if I knew the fish were there and that I just had to wait. But I don't know if I've thrown it into the right place, the wrong place, the right bait, the bait's off. You know, I just don't know what's going on. And it was exactly the same in the beginning. I mean, I've learned, you know, self-taught, internet taught. I recently joined a local woodworking association, but I think I've been to one or two of their meetings and it certainly hasn't been hands-on training. And I've always had these suspicions that this thing I've got in front of me, you know, have I got it wrong? Have I botched it horribly? Am I you know, advancing it too far? Have I set the frog in the wrong place? So you go through all of that. Whereas when a, you know, a premium plane arrives out of the box, you take it out the box and you use it. You know that if you're not getting the result that you expect from it, that the problem is with you. And I, I see that Rob Cosman, you know, now is actually selling uh, scary sharp blades, I think he calls it, where he'll actually just send you the blade that they've sharpened to the level of sharpness he believes a blade needs to be sharpened to. And it's, it's really just for that reference that you could buy this blade that comes, you know, in perfect nick. And I think there's quite a lot of value in that if you're unsure about the result that you're getting. I mean, I've considered it and I mean, I'm, you know what, I'm three years in now. I, I've considered it because I'm saying, well, is the sharpest I know as sharp as something should be? You really don't have that that frame of reference if you're buying something old and trying to stick it together, you know. And to be frank, I got a um, I've got some bad axes, as you know. If I'm working on white oak, sometimes cutting long cuts on white oak is a pain in the backside, and it really doesn't matter whether I'm using a big box store saw or whether I'm using a premium saw. Sometimes it's just hard work. But if you've got that premium tool, you've obviously then um, you've got that certainty that. It is working properly, and if you're not getting the result that you want, it's it's a result of what you're doing wrong rather than the tool doing something wrong. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And I don't think that if you have the means and you have the time and whatever and you choose to get a multitude of premium tools, but there's something to be said for having the experience of a properly set up tool and knowing what it's supposed to feel like. I mean, the advantage of having a quality tool, whether it's a quality restored old tool or a quality new tool, is that you know that any mistakes you make are the user's fault. Yeah, I think I think that's how I ended up with those bad X tools. You know, is uh, I went to uh, Highland Woodworking in uh, in Atlanta when I was you know when I was in transit there, and using one of them at the test bench and seeing what that did, you know, th- that immediately sells you as a completely different experience from the you know the the ten dollar or twenty dollar saw that I that I'd been using before that. Um, and, and maybe, you know, while we're talking about hand planes, you know, um, you and I spoke about this briefly, but there seems to be a lot of advice for beginner woodworkers to go and grab a low angle jack. You know, I've, I've always been a fan of the, the bevel down planes, and I guess that's just the history of having gone through those antique restorations, etc. What, what's your view on that? So I think that, you know, as we discussed, the bevel up versus bevel down planes. My problem with the bevel up jack is that it's sold as the one plane you'll ever need. And when, if you look historically, it was the one plane most carpenters didn't even have. It's, you know, it's, it's designed for trimming, for cutting end grain, for people who made butcher blocks. It is a marvelous compromise tool. And I think that if we're more honest with people when they're starting out, that this is a niche plane, this is something that once you get established, you'll use occasionally, or maybe you'll sell to buy that next tool, then we would be being a little bit more honest with the average user. Yes, you could use that as the only plane you have, but then you'd be swapping irons as you move between coarse, medium, and fine, and it would be a little too short for jointing and a a longer piece than 
definitely too long if you're working on a smaller piece. And, you know, if there's a reason that the smaller planes are smaller because to smooth, you need to hide that plane in, into the curves and valleys of that, that piece. And you need that long joiner to, to flatten. But you can get a lot of work done with a low angle jack, and it's less complicated. The mouth is easily adjustable. There's not a cap iron. There's not a frog. There's not, you know, and when you're, when you're first starting out, you're like, what's a frog? Why is this thing called and it got an amphibious name in here? And what is, you know, and you're, you know, especially if you get a Bailey style and you don't get a premium plane, is there a good joining surface in there? Is, are they well mated or is there vibration coming in? you get one from Lee Nielsen or Lee Valley, you know that those mating surfaces between the blade and the bed are all going to be perfect. So I think it's a great starter plane, especially within the context of learning by yourself. If you have a person who can show you how to set up a Bailey plane and run it, whether it's a record or a Lee Nielsen or, or whatever, I 100% agree with you. I prefer to bevel down planes. It's also a tough one in, in that I guess that the advice that's being given is also being given to someone in terms of almost what's a minimum toolkit that will get you by. And I think in that context, suggesting a plane that, like you say, is a compromise tool that does a bunch of things quite well. You know, there's certainly, certainly nothing wrong with using it for a lot of things. But, you know, I also kind of feel that if you're talking to somebody who is committed to it and, you know, is going to be in it for a couple of years, that um, I think a few of the people would regret not getting one that's slightly smaller or slightly bigger. You know, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the sort of number four, number seven combo. I guess that does a, a lot of work in my shop. I, I do use the number five, but I really find a number four can do can do a lot. Not not just, you know, as a, that sort of typical smoothing type role, but just a nice size. And if you're doing spot planing, it does a great job. So, you know, I think if I'd gone back now, I would have probably been inclined to try to get a number four and a number seven as the, as the two I'd started off with. And, you know, then if the stock was big, you'll be using the number seven and it might take you a little bit longer than it would have with a, with a jack, but you can kind of live with that or set it for a heavier cut. And then you've got the number four for, you know, working on, let's call it, you know, typical box size or drawer size material. But a lot of it depends on the scale of furniture that you're aiming at. If, if you're coming home and starting the sport and you're going to be making a bedstead after bedstead after dining room table, then, you know, certainly you want something bigger. And if you're making tiny little boxes, then again, you know, moving lower down on the spectrum makes sense. Yeah, I think that's, that's something we have to look at when we're picking any of our tools, whether it's for use or for just what do I want to buy next or what am I going to buy? Does that scale piece become in context becomes really important to choosing tools. I mean, what, what, what are you choosing to do? If you want to build an entire kitchen of cabinets, you might even ask yourself, unless you're going to do that all out of solid wood, is this hand tool is really the most efficient way to do that? Or is it even something that you're going to enjoy doing? resharpening your saw after cutting through plywood that sheet after plywood sheet so on the other hand if you're building you know small decorative boxes you may never need anything bigger than a number four so and the problem is is the jack plane is the jack of all trades and the master of none is the old saying right so it does okay at a lot of things and that's okay if that's going to be your only plane to start with and i think that's why it becomes the generic recommendation what vehicle would you recommend for a family of four? Minivan, a, a small SUV? Yeah, depends. But you know, then you throw in some off-roading, and you know, you, you're looking at a four by four. You want to, you know, want to race around the block. You're looking at a convertible. You know, I, I, point taken. I think uh, there's certainly a there's certainly a lot of versatility in that jack plane. But 
you know, again, depends on the depends on the use that you that you're looking at. I, I do think that the planes probably just by their nature they have this fascination to them because you know certainly out of out of all the let's call it functions or processes that that you would accomplish with power tools, you know, a handsaw. There's there's kind of a direct analog in a, in the power tool world. You know, if you if you take um, a plane, though, you know, for me it really felt like a completely different world. I mean, taking the plane for the first time and getting that surface, and then comparing that to sitting with a you know dust mask and and a really messy sand. I just I just felt the plane was an absolute re- re- you know revelation the first time I used it, and I and I guess that it probably gets some love on that front. And then I think that you know the the guys at Stanley uh, and probably some of the Instagram uh, plane tools have also done us a lot of damage because you see these selections you know where you've got from number three to number seven there and everything in between, and you know it creates this impression that you need a whole bunch of them. And I I certainly don't fall into that camp anymore. But by the same token, I I think you you're probably going to want three of them, four of them, once you've settled down and settled into it? I, I think if we're talking about bench planes, that's probably a not unreasonable number. And depending on the variety of your projects, you might might vary that a little bit. You know, it, it was in Stanley's interest to sell more planes. So it's hardly surprising. And they probably sold more to the people, you know, was the school system who came in and said, we need to buy hand planes. And the Stanley rep might have said, you know, in 1890, well, okay, great. Here's the you need to buy this series of hand planes, and the dedicated woodworkers, the master craftsmen, would have come in and bought whatever was appropriate to their to their needs. And Brett, from a from a sawing point of view, I mean, saws seem to almost be relegated, I guess, a little bit to you know to the to the back benches. Um, I've certainly found that having one good joinery saw, you know, was a was a real step change in terms of my arsenal. Your view on your view on saws? I mean, I I think. We probably agree that getting a big box saw or something like that to just break down rough stock. I mean, and you know, when you're sawing kind of way off your final line, that makes sense. But what's your view in in terms of that in the workshop? I think hand saws are a real game changer. I mean, there's a lot of things that are just better done with a hand saw than they are with a power saw. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And I think that a quality hand saw can make all the difference in the world. You know, we're blessed. I can tell you when I started woodworking that, you know, there were not people making in any quantity quality panel saws or or anybody, anything beyond a panel saw. You couldn't go and buy a new handsaw. You couldn't go buy a new 26-inch handsaw with any degree of repeatability. And now we're at a point where we're getting multiple manufacturers again producing in that. But the ability, you know, to take a, a saw and make a quick, small cut here or even if you look at let's you know i made a small dovetail box recently and if you've ever have you ever tried to use a a, a powered dovetail jig no no i haven't i, I must be honest I've, I've seen them and i was pretty intimidated by them when i when i was using power tools <laughs> and i and i thought that looked way too uh it looked way too scary i, I was never very uh good on my route my router i think my router you know typically was used for roundovers and that was kind of where it was at so yeah i, I looked at those and uh, I, I was really just getting into dowel joints when uh, i made the switch so no i've certainly never tried one of those before well they have this amazing thing that only works in a power tool shop they require and really only works with like plywood or mdf they require that each and every piece of material be the exact thickness you have set for it so if you want yeah. to cut 200 drawers fine they make sense and you mill all your stock exactly the same but if you want to cut a four-sided box, 
there's no way you can compete with the speed of a handsaw. And a handsaw can let you can do smaller cuts, finer cuts, safer cuts than you can by going to any other type of tool. To my mind, a sharp plane and a sharp chisel and a sharp saw, probably probably for most people, a sharp joinery saw are going to be their first light bulb moments. I mean, if they're lucky enough to get their hands on a sharp full-size handsaw, that's a great experience. But ripping thick stock is just a lot of work. There's a reason that the, f- the first things that we came up with were things to thickness stock and to, to rip stock for us. You know, that, that's fair enough. I mean, e- even now, I mean, ripping long stock is, is hard work. I think to your point, I, I wouldn't really aspire to redoing a kitchen myself, you know, I, unless it was with, uh, let's call it mismatched furniture, but certainly not like that cabinet approach of just coming in, ripping everything out and, you know, building all those kitchen cabinets because it's really just that monotony of doing everything over and over and over again and trying to get those tolerances the same. Whereas you mentioned a small dovetail box. My my son had a a pet rat who died recently and I, I could just go and grab a piece of wood that was roughly the right size, cross cut, you know, again, roughly to the right length, shoot uh, the ends a little bit and just get it up to to um, to having four match pieces. And I, I could build that box. I, I, I still don't know what the measurement was. You know, I really just kind of eyeballed it and went with a, you know, a one to two ratio from, you know, from the small side to the long side, just sat down and, and did that. And, you know, the, the joinery saws, you know, I was using that uh, 12 inch uh, bad axe, this small little hybrid tenon saw thing they, they call it mine's filed cross cut um, and I just chopped these up and then I saw oh, you know I've kind of eyeballed the middle of the board and you know split it in two and I'm, I'm out by let's say a quarter of an inch on the one side and I could just strike another line and you know trim the the offending piece to size and it was also you know when you say light bulb moment just that moment of going you know I've can just take a couple of simple tools here you know saw chisel i used a coping saw to cut out the waste i'm playing with that at the moment and you know in an, in an hour i had a little coffin for the for the pet rat you know and the plow plane came off the shelf for a little bit to you know to just uh, um rabbit in the bottom and the, and the top and you know it was all just done it, it was quiet it was calm it, it was just a lot of fun now if i was going to run a business to make coffins for rats you know then i then i'd absolutely go and set up 14 jigs in a in a shop and just process uh, wood through it but you know that that's not uh, for me what's exciting about the hobby i think it's doing you know a project at a time a little thing at a time maybe a pair of matching side tables you know so i'm not saying that there might not be some duplication, but you know, when I consider these guys who are making chairs, and I sit there thinking about making eight wins of chairs to go around a dining room table, uh, th- that's when I'm starting to drift back towards power tools. That's, that looks like a lot of uh, duplication there. I think you make a great point there, and you know, the majority of us hobbyists are not doing repetitive tasks. I've actually done a kitchen once; it was an interesting experience. I did one in my last house, but. That's the freedom of the, the hand tool and the handsaw is the ability to do non-repetitive tasks quickly, easily, reliably. And I think we do our ancestors a disservice by somehow thinking that they were all just pining away on high boys all day long doing ultra-delicate work. But these were people who were working to feed their families. And while we should all aspire to do our best work, we have to be realistic about the context of what we're doing. How much time am I going to take for every little step? Is it bad that there's a, you know, some, I'm sitting here at my workbench, I can reach underneath and feel some, some plane tracks underneath the bottom of it. If they don't interfere with the clamping process, is it a problem? No, not really. Is it even bad or less than good? 
now if the surface is finished, it's not rough, it's, there's no harm in it, it's not giving anybody splinters, and it would have taken time away from something else I could have do because we're all, we're all limited beings, we're all limited in our time, we're limited in our space. So as I say, I think we do a disservice to our ancestors to say I'm being a traditional woodworker and spending 75,000 hours building a tiny little box. Unless that tiny little box it has a special meaning attached to it, tools don't have to be slow. Is I guess where I'm going with that. You had a post a little while back where you were, you know you were doing some speed dovetails, and I, I think I was a little bit inspired by that today because I could work between some video conferences that I had. So I've, I've had most of the days been sort of split up, but I I had an hour here and I had half an hour there, and I just said, look, I'm, I need to get this done you know the the kids want to dig a hole in the garden and have a ceremony for the rat so you know i i would like to say goodbye to the rat the same way we've said goodbye to you know the cats you know put them in a nice you know nice little uh, box in the ground and you know put some flowers on and all the rest of it but I, I did have a time constraint today and i think that recently i've been quite paralyzed about working on my daughter's wardrobe because i've just been so obsessed about getting it perfect and you know, I contrasted that with the freedom of today, which was, Ray, you've got an hour. Get going in that hour. You've got to do 90% of the box in the hour. You, you've got to glue up the joints in the hour. And you can come back in another hour and you've got half an hour there where you can, you know, you can make a lid to match. And having that time pressure and, you know, I kind of grabbed a, grabbed a crosscut saw because I was, I was, you know, obviously dimensioning the stock. And then I started the dovetails and I realized I was using the um, the crosscut saw and I was like, okay, I'm not I'm not grabbing the stiletto. I'm not, you know, swapping backwards and forwards. I can saw now, I can saw to a line and this is not going to kill me. Just use the saw that you've got in your hand and go for it. And it was quite liberating, just sort of, I don't want to say rushing, but I, but I was very conscious of the time. And while I was working, I thought, gee, this is, this is an 18th century cabinet shop, you know, where you've got a deadline and you're not getting paid and you've got to get that box out because the customer's coming in an hour and a half's time or whatever. It was quite a quite an interesting experience to do that today. I was lucky enough to go to Woodworking in America uh, a couple of times back when that still existed. Watching Frank Klaus do dovetails by hand, by eye, and you know this guy went up through a traditional apprenticeship, probably want the last generation that's going to go up through a traditional apprenticeship in that way and he just pops the dovetails out and of course that requires a higher level of skill but it requires a willingness to to try that you know we're always striving for affection but sometimes we have to realize that we're not never going to get there if we don't practice if we don't try if we don't learn i try and be very open about when i fail or muck something up i think you saw one of my posts where i completely blew the cuts because we're all gonna that's how it happens we get there by doing it and I encourage anybody listening to this, go Frank Klaus has a video somewhere on there from three minute dovetails or something like that. And the man cuts dovetails in, in no time flat. And there's your 18th century cabinet maker knocking this stuff out. And for the back of a drawer or a simple wooden box, like you were so, so kind to make for your children and for their pet, which my compliments on that, that's the, you know, that's real. That's real woodworking. I was also saying to my wife afterwards, I said, you know, that's, it's quite liberating in a way because, you know, I said to her, if we're sitting there on a weekend and we're going off to a kiddie's birthday party and, you know, my daughter, I don't know, decides to buy some earrings for a friend or whatever, it's also kind of nice to know that you can chuck her, you know, an hour or two at something and you don't have to dedicate weeks and months to it and you could put a little box together and i i, I don't know i'm, I'm going to try and work on it because it, it's not perfectly entrenched in my head but you know I, I do have this thought in a way that you know a dovetail is also just a joint you know sometimes it doesn't have to be a work of art sometimes it's that shape and it's that function and it's to hold the sides on 
you know, and if there's a few gaps, look, I mean, ironically, it's probably one of the easiest, uh, you know, joints if you get it wrong to fix. You know, you can always just shim something in there. and It's you know, way it easier and to cut than a mortise and tendon, for example. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and uh, you know, and yet that I think there's this, I don't know, I'm going to call it that sort of Instagram perfection. You know, so often, I mean, I follow a lot of woodworkers. I don't know. I'm sure you do as well. But, you know, I, I see these superb examples of uh, of woodwork every day on the internet and you know it kind of sinks into your subconscious that that's the standard and i think that if we can occasionally just get in there and chuck something out that's uh, that's worthwhile in its own you know in its own in its own sense so there you have it woodworms this is essentially the point where brad and i came to the conclusion that we really need a whole bunch more bad dovetails out there on the internet so in conclusion of today's show i'd really just like to ask you if you have an example of something that you did that is functional, keeps the joint together, but it's not quite perfect. Put it out on Instagram or any other form of social media. Tag it with hashtag bad dovetails and show everyone that sometimes a dovetail is just a joint that needs to be functional and do its job, but it doesn't need to look like it's come off the cover of popular woodworking. I hope this thought liberates you a bit and allows you to have some fun during this next week. Go out there and make some jointry as if you were on a terrible deadline in the 18th century. Join me next week where Brad and I get into the meat of his tool list. I gave him a challenge about spending $1,000 on tools and we've got three tool lists to discuss. Two of his and one of mine where we'll tell you what we would recommend spending your money on if you were just getting into the hobby and wanted to spend your money on tools that you'd be able to keep and use for a lifetime. So that's it for today, Woodworms. Remember, keep reading, keep having fun in your shop and if you've got any comments or suggestions, please send them to me at handtoolbookreview.com at gmail.com. I always enjoy the engagement with you, the listeners. If you'd like to support me, you can find me on Patreon. Contributions go towards funding books for the library and supporting future episodes. 